Hi, people. Welcome back to the show. Today, we're talking with Father Mark Bosco about Flannery O'Connor. I've been really excited about this interview. We had a little audio um, trouble a little bit, but um, yeah, if you just be patient with that. We did the best we could with um, the connection we had. But uh, yeah, Father Mark Bosco, who is... uh, you know, somewhat of an expert on Flannery O'Connor and and um, just really, really loves um, the work of Flannery O'Connor. Has a lot of really, really deep insights into what, what she was getting at with all these crazy... If you've ever tried to open up Flannery O'Connor... Re- I remember, uh, I mentioned this in the interview, that uh, my first exposure to her was just buying an old book. It was a collection of the complete stories by Flannery O'Connor... Uh, by Noonday, pu- I don't know, publications or whatever. And I had this old book with a big peacock on the front. And I'm like, okay, short stories. I know this is a name that I'm supposed to know to sound cultured and, and to sound well-read. And I, I'm, you know, I'm a Catholic, so I'm supposed to know this person. I know she's influential and important. And you open up some of these stories, you start reading, and you're like, there's a guy in an ape costume, and he's standing on a hill looking over the city. Like, you're not really sure what's going on. They're weird and dark um, and, and, and just real and short, uh, really like shorts, these just tiny short stories. She wrote uh, 32 short stories and two novels and has had a huge influence on American culture. I, maybe, maybe, I don't know, not American culture, but just, just on America. Um, she, she's... Um, yeah, I mean, towards the end, Father Mark kind of drops this all these bombs on all these people who um, I think Tommy Lee Jones wrote a thesis on her in college. Conan O'Brien wrote a thesis on her. Bruce Springsteen has said he's very influenced by the work of Flannery O'Connor. So, um, yeah, so we talk about Flannery O'Connor. Father Mark is very insightful and also, um, you know, I was intimidated. This is one of the first interviews that I, I don't know. I got a little intimidated. I feel I fell out of my depth. I was like, I need to have insightful questions. I need to I need to know what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, am I using vocabulary words that I understand? And I just felt felt a little intimidated. And the audio was was a little was a little off. And then Father Mark, you know, just came back from Qatar or or some some strange Middle Eastern country where he's you know, doing, doing the Lord's work. So I really enjoyed this interview. Hopefully you'll forgive me for being awkward and the audio for being kind of, but it's just internet weather. We have some internet weather out here in Texas. So if you want to support the show and help us not have as much internet weather, you can go to patreon.com slash the show and yeah, just support this. Like this is independent. This is raw stuff. I mean, you know, I just take tell my wife and all five of my kids well four and one in the one in the womb to just go outside and I just sit in this room and do stuff like this and I don't want to I don't want to put ads on this but I do want to get um you know do want to get interesting people on the show and and keep doing this uh so you go into patreon.com slash the show and supporting the show you can be part of it you can uh, have access to um, the guests ahead of time um you know submit questions and all sorts of fun stuff so if you want to support the show if you think that um, this should exist. Head on over there. So, without further ado, here's here's the interview. Um, lots of links in the show notes, so you can see all the different books that were suggested. And uh, yeah, let me know what you think. If you're a huge Flannery O'Connor nerd, um, I think you'll really appreciate. And 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 be sure to keep a keep a lookout for the documentary that's coming out that Father John or Father Mark Bosco is working on and helping produce. So, that's it. Get in there. Get in there and listen to this. Okay. You're pretty good. 
Okay. This is your this is your world, not mine. So, <laughs> although I'm doing a video, uh, a documentary on Flannery O'Connor, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know what the video side of that is about. I just keep on getting the cuts and say yes, no, yes, no, yes, yeah, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're the creative brains. Right, 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 right. Well, cool. All right. Well, um, I guess we'll just start. I don't have any. I don't have any fancy intro. But thank you so much for being here. Were you? You were in. Where were you last week? You were like out of the country. You were out of the continent. Yeah, George, Georgetown has a uh, a campus in Doha, Qatar. Okay. Uh, and um, I was there for a week to kind of uh, do a Jesuit Heritage Week. Uh, they won everything that the main campus has, and uh, so we did a uh, three or four presentations on Ignatian pedagogy and. Jesuits in the Middle East over the wow. 450 years and um, said got to say mass for the community, uh, which was really nice and things like that. Wow, that's intense. What are you feeling? Yeah, it is, it is especially since Catholicism or Christianity is, is not it's not outlawed, but you can't uh, publicly do it. Yeah. So uh, I felt like we were in the upper room, you know, <laughs> and uh, did, you have to, did you have to wear a disguise or something? Did you have to like hide? <laughs> No, at least in this country, you could you could wear clerics yeah. and stuff. You were you're not allowed to say mass except in in the one designated place in the entire country. Really? And, uh, and so, where is that? So we, it's called it's called Church City. Okay. It's got a Protestant building, a Catholic building, and an Orthodox building. Oh man! And uh, but we did it. We did it at we did it in our campus uh, with with faculty and students. Man, that's crazy. Well, thank you so much for for taking time to come come on here and talk about Flannery. Sure. Uh, my so my my kind of goal would be uh, for people who have no idea who Flannery is. Um, I'm I am a ve- I'm an amateur. Like my journey started when I just bought this book that was like the complete works of Flannery at some like used bookstore, and I was like, I know this name. I know that this is a name that I'm supposed to know to to make me sound cultured, <laughs> but uh, but like I don't really know much about her and why she has such a such a big legacy. So I just wanted to maybe go a little bit into. If you could explain a little bit her life and then her works would be the two kind of sections. But before that, um, maybe you could tell tell everyone a little bit about yourself and, and your background because I think that would that would help. Um, I don't know, just show everyone you know the the um, I don't know the perspective that you that you have and the impact that Flannery's had on your life. So, um, as a as a Jesuit, I I studied and did scholarship research on the intersection of. Religion and literature, or religion and the arts, really. Um, Catholicism and the arts, Catholicism and literature. And I've always been interested in this, the fact that, you know, all art started out as a religious experience. So all the great epics, the first poetry of the Bible, it's all, it's it's basically using words to create, um, uh, to illustrate, to to a body or to respond to something that was transcendent or uh, meaningful. So, um, so my, my scholarship's been on that, especially on the 20th century. What happens after modernism? You know, our modern time. Yeah. How does how does that get kind of um, uh, reshaped and thought about uh, in light of you know, two world wars, two holocausts, an atomic one, and a and a, and a racist racial one. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so, basically, I, I study authors mostly, and so I worked on Graham Greene. Uh, first, uh, because he fascinated me um, first, and then I'm kind of an OCD scholar, and uh, I did everything with Green. I felt okay, and um, and I got to know Flannery O'Connor obviously through high school, college, but I really didn't um, move to Flannery, and, and really was not was moved by Flannery until I was finishing my doctoral work, and um, her stories um, are just the most beautiful jewels. Uh, they're like these diamonds, yeah. and. Um, 
And but they're 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 different, right? There's a lot of dead bodies. Yeah, they're extremely the different. Stories. They're weird. That was my problem. Was I would pick up the book and I would start reading some story about some person uh, in an ape costume and be like, "What is going? I don't understand." This is like eight page stories that, that are just very strange and odd. And then I'd put it back down and go, "I maybe I'm not smart enough to understand what's going like what's going on." Well, here. you should start. First of all, you've got the you've got the collected short stories. You should start later. You should start with story like number eight or nine. I don't. My book's over okay. there, but. Uh, uh, because those first ones were, were, were early chapters of her novel, okay. and I'm not sure why um, Bob Giroux, her editor, put those in. But I would have started with um, uh, probably I would have started with uh, uh, the, the, the Life You Save May Be Your Own um, uh, or maybe uh, The River. Um, certainly uh, Temple of the Holy Ghost. A Good Man is Hard to yeah. Find probably is most famous. Yeah. But my, my interest in her was that she was she's the most interesting, unique writer of the 20th century in America. Okay. And there is no there was no one who mastered the short story like she did. And she was a woman writing mm-hmm. for publishers who are men yeah. and getting published. They thought she was cool. Yeah. She was a Catholic mm-hmm. uh, in a world in which nobody was Catholic in the literary world, really. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a kind of an anomaly. She was a southern woman. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in, a, in, and, a product, and a in a Protestant world, right? I mean, she's definitely a Southern woman, a Catholic woman in a Protestant world, but also a woman of because she was white, also a woman of privilege. So you, you see playing out in her stories four things: gender, that mm-hmm. she's a woman who who makes it; uh, race, because she she's right there at the end of Jim Crow and the kind of movement of the civil rights as it begins; uh, faith. Without a doubt, she's this Catholic writing about all these Protestants around her, but reads Thomas Aquinas for fun. Literally, I mean, she gets she gets so much excitement and she spends her evenings. I th- she some people say she's being facetious, but no, she had she had the Summa Theologia around, um, and she read everything by Jacques Maritain. She read all of the great you know 20th century writers on Aquinas, yeah. and then finally disabilities. Huh. She died of lupus when she was 39, and as she was writing her master novel. She contracted uh, lupus, and um, she fought with that for the last 15 years of her life. So you see misfits and disformed people yeah. and people with missing arms or people with a foot that's, you know, uh, or a, a woman, uh, Holga Joy Hopewell, without a leg, you know. So there's this idea of somehow disability playing out in her as well. So those – I think – if you put those four things together, you've got a, an American moment, really, uh, of the 20th century. Yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of, religion, it's kind of, women, you know, race. Yeah, I was just going to say those are all the topics I see in Twitter, like every day. <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> Gender, right, exactly. race, yeah, it's like, yeah. and spirituality yeah. too. So that's really interesting. So what, what, yeah. what is her man? By the time she's 39, she didn't. Her body of work is not a huge. I mean, 32 short, no. short novels or short stories, and. Um, and two novels. How, how long are the, the two novels? Are they huge books? Not very long. Okay. Uh, 200, maybe 300 pages tops. That's what fascinates me the most is before she's 39, she's written a, a few stories and then had such a huge impact. I mean, what was – I don't know. Maybe you could talk a little bit about her life maybe prior to all of this flourishing of these works and stuff. Like what – like does it just come out of nowhere in a, in a couple of years span? No, no. I mean she she was definitely um, a precocious little girl in the South. She grew up in Savannah first. Uh, right next to St. John the Baptist Catholic Cathedral. All the Catholics kind of lived on these Savannah squares. Uh, you know, the Protestants had theirs and stuff. Um, but she was a little precocious. I mean, she she had a she just had a, a wry sense of humor. 
Um, she could see the world and and satirize it easily. And she thought of herself as an artist. We have we have her art um, uh, doing things, uh, little cartoons at fifth five years of age. Oh wow! Um, she was. Uh, she was doing uh, cartoons throughout her high school and college for the school newspaper. So she thought of herself as a satirist. Um, and she moves to Milledgeville when her, her father dies of lupus when she's uh, 15. Um, they moved to the family, Klein family mansion. Um, and uh, she she goes to school there and she's um, she she's like one of a few Catholics. And so they go over to the Sacred Heart Church and do a kind of a a Newman society, even back then, uh, the basement of the church. Um, and so putting that, that kind of satirical gaze on what's going on in the world with this really deep seated sense that, listen, we're all messed up. We're all broken because of original sin. I know it, but, but my characters don't, and they get their comeuppance yeah. at the end of the novel or the end of the story that in some ways it's, a, it's basically accepting their own sense of they're not the masters of their world. And that this is all a fabrication. These southern manners of white, you know, white women, or you know, uh, or of uh, mothers and daughters, uh, you know, these kind of plays. And so, um, so I think that she's important because she has this ability to um, kind of put a mirror to our face. You know, my favorite quote. Um, we're doing this documentary on Flannery O'Connor right now, and uh, this great. A critic of Flannery O'Connor in Georgia actually says, you know, Flannery O'Connor is the best American writer for recovering racists. Huh, interesting. And she and he goes on to say, and he leans in, and he says, and you know, if you're white, you're always a recovering racist. <laughs> and, uh, and 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 I thought, you know, that's what her stories are about. These people who think they just have this privilege in their yeah. life. And they, they can master everything. And, and of course, it's much more complicated than that in the stories. But they kind of like, wait a minute. You know, no, I'm not the master of my life. Yeah. My life is still a mystery. And in many ways, that word mystery is so important to her because that's the transcendent. That's the place where God is. And it could be a dark place yeah. or it can be a light place of insight. But mystery over manners. So did, her, did her father die when she was very young? I mean, she was 15. Okay. Yeah, uh, when when she died, and she was very close to her father. Her mother wanted to to raise her as a Southern belle, but her father really appreciated her artistic side, her her humor, and so I think it was a great great loss when when she died when he died. Um, she really thought she was going to be a a cartoonist for like the New Yorker magazine covers oh, wow. and stuff, and she was never that never got that good. So she ended up in um, Iowa Iowa Writers Workshop. And um, and that, at that time, and maybe some people would even say today, it's the one of the best places for um, an MFA. And um, she comes alive, and she, her vision, this weird sensibility, um, comes alive. And she, you know, she she creates these characters that are misfits. Uh, and yet they're out there in the world. We just sometimes gloss over and make everything look the same, yeah. you know. And she's looking for that interesting, unique, she would call grotesque feature of, of humanity. You know, when, when I was asking about um, Flannery's father, I guess maybe I'm trying to maybe it's maybe this isn't fair, but I'm trying to trying to pinpoint where all of this, um, you know, this like sarcastic way of looking at the world and then this dark side, but also the the grotesqueness, but also the, you know, the the light side of her faith and this. um this like strengthen her, like where that comes from. I was just, I don't know. I was wondering if having to deal with her, her father passing away so young might've, might've colored some of that. 
Um, yeah, I, I don't. I think it. I think it was much earlier, really. Um, I think that she had a. She was possessed by something. You know, uh, she 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 loved birds and peacocks. There were, at one time, there were sixty peacocks on their farm outside of Milledgeville, and even as a, as a kid, as a five-year-old, um, she had so many ducks, and she had this chicken that walked backwards, and Pate News came to film it. I mean, so she was precocious and, and unique at five years old, you know? Um, matter yeah. of fact, in her, um, one of her essays called The King of the Birds, you know, she, it starts out this way. When I was five, I had an experience that marked me for life. Pepe New sent a photographer from New York to Savannah to take a picture of a chicken of mine. This chicken, a buff cochin bantam, had the distinction of being able to walk either forward or backward. Her fame had spread through the press, and by the time she reached the attention of Pate News, I suppose there was nowhere left for her to go, forward or backward. Shortly after that, she died. It's now some city. Oh, man. And she says basically... Day my life is that went downhill. Um, and and yeah. so there's a humor. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think I lost you there for the last part. Oh. I, I I got her life went downhill. Yeah, her life went. Well, she no, she she makes a joke in that same essay. She says basically everything after that was anticlimactic. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah. But uh, but but what what's interesting about her is that there is a sense of her uniqueness and her individuality. At the same time that she sp- she spends so much of her for her early life knowing, knowing that her art is a vocation. If you read the prayer journal mm-hmm. and uh, and her even through high school, she's got these really deep kind of longings to say, God, let me be doing this for the right reason, you know, um, not for my vanity. Um, uh, let me not get mixed up in all the craziness of, of the artist, you know, the romantic artist. Um, so there is this real sense of of her knowing that she's got a talent, knowing that she's got the temptation in her to use this talent for her own kind of aggrandizement or her own sense of, you know, uh, vanity or pride, uh, and really wanting to check it as much as she can. Um, man, it's really, man, that's, yeah, that's, I feel like, I feel like that's kind of, uh, that's kind of unique for some, what, what, how old was she when she starts writing all these short stories? She's basically, uh, starting to write in like 20 to 21 years of age. Okay. Her story, okay. yeah, man. Her, when she's 25, the novel comes out and the short stories come out pretty much quick, uh, after that. Man. So, and is she she's getting published in all of these. What was the at the time the reception of of her works? Oh well, when they first came out, they were just they just thought it was crazy. Uh, her first her novel came out in the New Yorker and the New York Times. They kind of, they kind of said, "Well, there's this really interesting voice um, with all these nihilistic characters and you know grotesque characters." They really thought her that she was a nihilist. Basically, she was part of this existentialism of you know 1950s. And uh, she writes in a letter to a friend. She says, "Well, most people think I'm a I'm a, a nihilist, but I'm really a, I'm a hillbilly Thomist." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so she really has this sense of um, being able to kind of uh, play with this idea that you know the world is broken. We have all these kind of existential characters, but behind the facade of all that for her is this real moral world—a world of salvation and redemption, a world of of, of original sin, really, kind of playing itself out in her characters. 
And I would say also, yeah, that's what. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, go go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I think I think one of the things that I'm I'm moved by her as well is that her characters um, take a lot of time to get to like, and it's mostly because you respect them because there's something coherent about them, um, and their quest either to to throw off God or to throw off you know, um, well, I think to throw off God, and yet. Um, do you remember that poem, The Hound of Heaven, uh, by yeah. Francis Thompson? Um, yeah. So there's something about a hound of heaven about her characters, you know, about her stories, that, you know, you really can't, you can't get rid of God. Um, and you, you, you might spend an entire story trying to do it, and it can be humorous, and it can be violent. But in the end, you're kind of left, if not in a, in a detente, then with some kind of sense of insight that, ah, you know, I, I finally get it. Man, that's interesting. Why? So one one of the things um, that she's also kind of her works are maybe characterized by sometimes is is exactly what you're talking about that she's wrestling with these questions of mor- morality. Why why do you think that was so important to her? And and um, I don't know. Do, do do you find that she did this in a very effective way, or would you find that it was more um, recre- recreational? Was she trying to say was she trying to say something, or was she just exploring this, like you said, existentially? I think she was trying to say something uh, and, and that the only way for her to say it was by writing a story. She couldn't yeah. say it conceptually, philosophically. So she, she uses what God gave her, which is her, her artistry. Um, mm. And every story she, she writes is to try to bring, to kind of, she uses the word penetrate, to penetrate underneath, uh, to penetrate into the mystery and the heart of being to penetrate uh, into the, the, the crazy dynamics of the world. Um, and not so much to have, and have, a, to have a kind of a moral ending that feels tidied or virtuous, but that kind of leaves you with that sense of uh, the energy that, of violence that leaves you with a sense of, wow, this is, this is crazy. You know, like, like almost a decenter the reader uh, enough to think and to feel unsettled at the end. Yeah, what so, one of the? Uh, oh, were call, you still going? Yeah, I was just saying. I wouldn't call her a moralistic right, or that morality is really what she's worried about. Matter of fact, mm-hmm. I don't think she's worried about morality at all. What she's worried about is salvation, and those are two different things for her. Is what? Say that again. She's worried about salvation. Oh, interesting. Because yeah, but you, she's not really, she doesn't care about good and bad. Um, yeah, she doesn't really. I mean. Uh, she cares. She cares about can you be redeemed? Yeah. Um, th- so it reminds me, and I hope I hope you'll forgive me for doing this because it's probably spoiling a, a great a great. Maybe I just won't say the title of the story. But there's if for people who haven't read, I just want to read the last part. This is one of the one of the few, and, and um, I guess maybe one of the most famous of her stories. But I, it just reminded me of what you were talking about. This redemption or this this tension of of redemption or this this person but it's this end of the story where um where these uh i guess criminals or misfits um end up killing this this um i guess very um un un uh unpleasant woman this unpleasant old woman and um the the two kind of the two kind of misfits are, are talking to each other about the woman because uh, she had been pleading for her life and saying all these things like I'll do this and I'll do and making all these promises and trying to trying to figure out a way out of it. And they end up killing her. And this is the last part where um, it's a uh, Bobby Lee is saying she was a talker, wasn't she? Um, 
And uh, the misfit says she would have been a good woman if it had been someone there to shoot her every minute of her life. And man, that one line of all of the, well, of the very little that I had read, man, it just like shook me. This, this idea that, um, if only we could have someone there at every point of our life, um, you know, ready to, ready to take us out, uh, how, how different we would live our life. And I think, you know, I don't know. I just love, I thought of that as you were talking about this, t- this tension and, and less of morality and more of salvation of that woman. Yeah, exactly. It, it, and that, of course, that's one of her most famous and most anthologized stories. Um, but here's this woman who's basically talking about, you know, she's a manipulative uh, grandmother, and um, she went to her way uh, with her family, and she even is the cause of their whole family being killed. Uh, and she's saying, oh, just if you would just pray to Jesus, you know, and manipulating Jesus to say, you know, you know, as if Jesus was just another card in her, you know, um, in her wares to kind of get get her off the hook from being killed. Um, yeah. Uh, until that very moment at the very end when this misfit is crying and he's like, for the first time she, she realizes, oh my God, he, here's a man in pain. And she mm. reaches out to touch him. And for the very first time, she acts like a real grandmother. Right? Mm. And But she touches him and I love how O'Connor and you know, the misfit comes back as if a snake, right? Had bit him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all very much a kind of, you know, Genesis, the whole Garden of Eden thing. Um, yeah. Three, three uh, shots to the, uh, to her. Um, but, but there is a sense that only, and in this way, Flannery O'Connor's like Dostoevsky. Only when mm. your back is up against a wall sometimes do you take yourself really seriously? Do you take your God seriously? Do you take life seriously, right? Because we live in delusions that we're, we're going along and, it, and we're controlling our lives. And we forget that in some ways, um, it's not until we're in these very painful or, or, or intense climatic moments that faith kind of swoops into our lives again or becomes the center of it again. So the misfit, although he's a psychopath, says the most true thing in that entire uh, story, which you just read. She would have been a good woman, you know? Yeah, I, I, it it reminds me of uh, well, it, it's almost like there's something in being horrified uh, while reading her. Maybe now I'm understanding the whole the grotesqueness that there is something in in kind of being like you were saying before, knocked off center. There is a there's a quote of hers where she said uh, she was being upset of of being constantly reviewed as brutal and sarcastic, and and that she didn't like being characterized as cynical. And she said, kind of speaking on this story, she said, these stories are hard, but they are hard because there's nothing harder or less sentimental than Christian realism. When I see these stories described as horror stories, I'm always amused because the re- reviewer always has hold of the wrong horror. What, what, maybe you could unpack what, what she's kind of <laughs> pointing at with that. Yeah. Um, I mean, in many ways, she sees, the whole, she sees every story as the art of a, a, a character being transparent to themselves for the first time, to use Kierkegaard's language, or mm-hmm. character uh, coming to the insight of who they are in the scheme of salvation, in the scheme of, of, of their relationships, in the scheme of redemption. And so she, her, the sense of violence or the grotesque is there uh, uh, in some ways as a way to shake up uh, characters out of this kind of malaise that they think you know, that, that they live in, um, and so 
what what critics saw on the surface was, like I said, this existential nihilism, um, and they were some were fascinated with that. They thought that the misfit was the most exciting person in that in that story, and not the grandmother, you know. And of course, hmm. uh, you know, the misfit is very exciting, um, but the misfit um, is not some kind of redemptive figure. Um, the redemptive figure is, it happens through the insight of the grandmother, right? When she reaches out to the man. Um, again, I don't, I don't want to get too much into it because I, I think I can talk about Funny O'Connor forever, and I'm not sure I answered the questions <laughs> that anybody asked me, but. Um, <laughs> but the sense that that O'Connor O'Connor's sense of Christian realism is that it's bringing two things together. It's bringing what we see in the surface and what is something primordial and deep in us that needs redeeming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she really lives with a sense of of a kind of the sinful person, um, almost throttled by God into mercy, <laughs> you know? Mm, yeah. um, so people are fascinated with the violence. Some people are fascinated um, just with the violence. And O'Connor got tired of people saying, listening to people talk about her, her or read about her stuff as this kind of, um, you know, these, these characters are, are unlovable, they're, uh, they're, um, they're evil, they're cruel. Um, and she's just saying, well, look, all I'm doing is taking what's on the surface of life and trying to penetrate down beneath it. And so she doesn't think that they've done the hard work of actually looking at really what it means to be a human being. Hmm. Do you, so have you found, I mean, obviously you're very, very passionate about Flannery and have you, have you found that she's influenced you personally, like impacted you personally? Um, her view of the world has kind of changed your own view of maybe yourself or the world. Well, my, well, the students who come to mass at the uni- Jesuit universities that I work at, they're like, oh, another Flannery O'Connor quote. Oh, another Flannery O'Connor <laughs> oh, My homilies tend to circle around Flannery O'Connor a lot. Yeah. So I guess it influenced me that way. Of course, she's my, um, she's, she's my scholarly you know, focus now. And so I, I, I eat, sleep, and drink Flannery O'Connor all the time. I'm teaching a course just on Flannery O'Connor to 27 Georgetown students. Um, mm. So it has changed my life because in some ways she's 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 not pious and she's not sentimental about faith. And she says one place, you know, everybody thinks that faith is just like this warm kind of electric blanket that keeps you warm in the winter. And so that when things are not going well, you can kind of just cloak yourself in faith. And she says, like like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, there's a cost to discipleship. There's something mm. there's something hard to it. But the hardness is not because. God is hard. It's because we we're so hard, you know. Something has to break yeah. in us. Um, and so, in many ways, I love her because she takes on. She's she's like, okay, you know, the world is a mess today. Um, and I'm not and I'm not going to say religion should be used to kind of be a palliative to the world. I'm saying religion could be the toolbox to explore the world and why it is the way it is. Um, and mm-hmm. stories kind of break that open for us in a way that. No other writer has ever done that, uh, at least in my estimation. I have to tell you, I've done a couple students did their doctorates on Flannery O'Connor, and I had one student. He's now teaching in Michigan, um, and he keeps uh, Flannery O'Connor by his bedside. Uh, and he, when he finishes a volume, the volume of stories or the volume of letters, he starts over again. He's now on his fourth. He's like on his fourth time doing it. Wow! And I said, "Why do you do that?" And he said. 
his wife actually asked him that. <laughs> huh. But um, he just, it's the best. It's the best Catholic theology you could ever get. And I thought, what an interesting way to you know to say that. Uh, that to reflect yeah. Connor is to get the Catholic drama embodied in in her characters, in her letters, in her fiction writing, in her um, essays. So I do think she's I do think she's a formidable person. And uh, and whether you're religious or not. You always respect the art and the craft. Uh, oh yeah, I've been to I've been to so many conferences with Antonio Connor, and there are people you know who are agnostic or atheist or kind of sec- basically secularists, right? Um, but my God, the, the the artistry, the craft of the short story that she that she does is compelling. Yeah, she she's she's one of the few people who I've heard quoted on. I mean, <laughs> I mean podcasts or just inter- just places that were the farthest from the faith and so that it that was another reason why i feel like she's so important and um just for today's day and age i mean she seems so uh relevant i mean this idea of um you know how do we portray the realness of the faith i think is is very pra- i mean it's very practical and relevant i mean especially as a you know as a young man trying to trying to live in 2018 i mean um that especially living out your faith that is such a such a hard um it's a hard ba- it's a hard balancing act it is, it is, to kind of the flannery o'connor is she did it she did it by exploring protestant people protestant characters huh because there's yeah. only maybe one or two catholics in any of her stories and so she does it in such a slate of hand kind of way that you never think that you're getting a kind of a Catholic story, a moral story. You get life, but you get told mm. through a Catholic lens, even if the characters are all these Southern, you know, evangelical type you know, people or Southern um, secularists. But there are these people from the South who are haunted by Christ, uh, haunted by a narrative of faith. And um, she finds it in them the way to explore her own sense of what Catholicism is. It's extraordinary, you know? Yeah. I mean, so why, I mean, we've kind of touched on this, but maybe you could speak directly on this. Why, why, what, what would you offer as a reason that maybe Flannery's works are needed today more than ever? I mean, we've, we've touched on some of these things, but I, I get the sense that as you're talking about all these things, it's so relevant to a lot of the issues and, and just a lot of the conversations that we're having in general, um, and she just seems so. The 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 topics that she's discussing and the thing the things that she's addressing and and bringing up and this ho- also this horror like this this her method as well her approach seems so relevant. But maybe you could just maybe wrap that up with some of the reasons why you might you how you would convince maybe a twenty one year old who who's never heard of Flannery, um, especially a Catholic who's never heard of Flannery, um, and and what what her worldview might help. Um, in their, I don't know, in their daily life, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to those kind of four concerns that always seem to me are so present in our world today. So here she is. Um, she's a she's a woman writer who's Catholic uh, and, and faithful to the Catholic Church. Um, and you know, so she's a kind of feminist, but she's not the mm-hmm. feminist that everybody would like, right? Because oh my gosh, how could you be a feminist and still be part of this patriarchal church? So she, she gets that into the tension of, of, of what it means to be a woman uh, that's part of this 2,000-year this Catholic tradition, right? 
being obedient and faithful to it, at the same time uh, being very much a kind of a strong woman with this talent and art who takes on um, uh, takes on life, takes on the patriarchy as much as possible. She sometimes says part of being a Catholic is the, the, the burden of being a Catholic is having to put up with, you know, stupidness or craziness, you know. So <laughs> that's what, number one, her faith life as a, as a Catholic woman. And the thing that, for me personally, over the last year, it's all about race and white privilege. Uh, to see mm. what happened in Virginia um, and uh, uh, to see white supremacy um, kind of uh, movements forming and saying that they need to be legitimized. I mean, this is the world of Fanny O'Connor in the 1950s, right? I mean, the mm. Klux Klan burned a cross on her property because she was a Catholic. She understands oh, wow. what white. She understands that the caste or the class system of the South, and she's she's poking fun at it sometimes. She's violently, you know, tearing it apart sometimes. But she's 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 reworking that in her stories, and I think that it goes back to what. Bruce Gentry said, you know, we're all, whatever privileges we have, we're always recovering from the sense that the world is not just the way we see it, right? So it's not a white person's world. Um, and so her characters are like that. I, I think anybody who, anybody with privilege in our world, it, 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 it calls, it, it's an it's a, it's a invitation to humility, right? Uh, and our white privilege. Um, it's a, it's a Islamophobia. Her stories, I mean, don't have anything to do with Islam, but I figure the same thing. All these kinds of ways in which we privilege a certain kind of way of being or thinking, it calls us back to a humbleness about how we're going to relate to things. I think that finally she is fascinating because um, the dis the sense of being of not fitting into the world, of being a misfit. Um, mm. is very much an experience of a lot of people today. Um, and so her stories can take you on a journey that can create a kind of um, another illustration of, of how the world is kind of a broken place. You know? um, so I think almost for all those reasons, I think she's, a, she's important. She's certainly important because she is an Orthodox Catholic. Who does the most unorthodox thing? So she doesn't see yeah. orthodoxy as a safe place. She sees orthodoxy as a, as a tool to explore the world to its ultimate, you know, kinds of revelation. Um, and sometimes you, you, you could I you could say she's conservative, but not really because she she's just so deeply Catholic in her intellectual way that um, she understands the varieties of ways of trying to explore life uh, in Catholic ways. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a great pitch. That's a great pitch. So where where would some where would you recommend someone starts? Uh, what, you know, if someone is willing to pick up uh, one of her either her novels or her short stories, where would you recommend someone start? Well, I think Wise Blood is of the two novels. That's the that's the novel that seems to get the most. Um, response from people uh and i do think it's a mm -hmm. great novel so i would say wise blood the novel you have a guy named hazel moats and of course you hear the word haze you hear the word moat and um there's a lot going on with eyes <laughs> and there yeah. in a biblical sense um then there, her, her collection of short stories a good man is hard to find the first collection is just great um yeah and it's in her collected stories but it starts with the like number seven or eight in there 
And then I would say the Latin third things, her letters. But some people who didn't understand Flannery O'Connor's work until they read her letters in a habit of being. I really would um, encourage you to buy that and read it yourself. It's, it's the most extraordinary um, journey of friendship that she has. Now that she's, she's basically immobilized, she has to be in Milledgeville. She can only work for a few hours a day. She has to go rest because of the lupus. And so what does she do? She has these epistolary friendships uh, that are very deep and very committed. And um, she explores what she believes about God, about friendship, um, about life in the South, about racism, about it's just it's incredible to read those letters. Is there is there a particular uh, publication or edition of that? Like if we just search Flannery O'Connor's letters, there's collections of those. The Habit of Being. That's the, that's the okay. Habit of Being, and it's it's uh, it's edited by Sally Fitzgerald, uh, and then the rest are all I think they're all by far Sprouse and Giroux uh, publishers. Okay. And so, and finally, tell us about the the documentary. I I have to admit, I did some. I was trying to find it, and I I was having a hard time figuring out what what it was called and where it's at. But tell us a little bit about the documentary that you're helping produce and and put together. Yeah. So, um, a friend of mine, Christopher O'Hare, who had gone to Harvard um, and gotten to know Sally Fitzgerald, who was the executor, uh, literary executor of Flannery O'Connor stuff. Um, uh, he kind of fell in love with Flannery O'Connor, like many of us have done, you know, to read everything about her. And he was going to do a one-act play uh, called The King of the Birds. Um, and Sally Fitzgerald and some of her friends said, you should go and videotape and document some of her friends and family members before they pass away. So he did this in 98 and 99. In 2005, he gave me this, this really high-quality film and said, listen, this is the start of a, of a documentary. Do something with it. Um, and any new of my love for Flannery O'Connor. So in 2011 and 12, I and my colleague Elizabeth Kaufman, who teaches documentary filmmaking at Loyola Chicago, um, we set about trying to find out as many people who have talked about Flannery O'Connor, writers, um, artists, actors, uh, to ask them how Flannery O'Connor, um, kind of doing what you're doing, Edmund, uh, how is mm-hmm. Flannery important to you and to your artistry? And so... We, we went with the, with the archival work of her friends and relatives. We then went and we filmed uh, Tommy Lee Jones, who did his, his Harvard senior thesis on Flannery O'Connor. Uh, oh, wow. Did not know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, Conan O'Brien, who did his thesis on Flannery O'Connor at Harvard many years later. Uh, we've, Holy cow. Yeah, we filmed uh, Alice Walker. Uh, who um, wrote The Color Purple, who uh, uh, writes about Flannery O'Connor. Um, Hilton Ellis from The New Yorker. Um, Tobias Wolf at Stanford. Uh, Mary Gordon, the great Catholic writer. Um, uh, Mar- Alice McDermott. Um, we tried to get Bruce Springsteen, who um, loves Flannery O'Connor and even said that um, Nebraska was kind of inspired by his rereading of Flannery O'Connor's short story. So, um, so we went around uh, to film and, and I put together basically a kind of a biography of her life, a docu-biography, um, and it's about 100 minutes long. And um, we have we're in discussions with PBS American Masters to have this, have a national broadcast within the next year as we finish up. Now we're in post-production. Um, it's really been a labor of love. Um, and it's... It's trying to really talk about who Flannery O'Connor is. There's no documentary that's been done like this. 
and uh, trying to um, introduce people to her um, to her art and to her life, really. Man, I am just like stunned at all the names you're you're dropping that have been influenced by her. Like, like that's man, that's just crazy. It's crazy. I think if anything, that's a huge. Um, Man, that, if that doesn't convince you to, to read her, if you haven't, I think that's a huge, a huge thing right there. Like that, you just ran, ran down all those influences. So, when does the documentary come out? Well, we're in post production right now, where we've okay. got, got the, the the music is being composed um, for us. Um, part of this was through an NEH grant, so we're using a lot of that money to finish up now. Um, we hope to get it to um, uh, 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 to the to PBS American Masters or to anybody else if they don't want it. By the uh, by, this summer, and if it, cool. if it goes to PBS, it's it's usually an eight to twelve month period of um, getting a national broadcast slot. Um, so we're hoping to show it. Uh, we're hoping to have it on TV or at least uh, in somewhere in early twenty nineteen. And and there is there is some type of footage uh, on YouTube or or somewhere. I, I was searching for the documentary and I came up with, there are some clips of, is, is that related to the work that you were doing or is that the original clip, clip that you were referencing? Yeah. So I think for a while we had the, um, the tra- a trailer that we put up. Okay. Gotcha. But we keep on taking things on and off because we keep on changing our minds about what the title is going to be. Um, so right <laughs> now, so right now um, we're just showing it at certain colleges. I'm going to show it at Marquette next in two weeks um, to a small group just to kind of talk about it. And then I'm going to show it again at Fairfield University. Um, and, uh, and we, so we're trying to get some people to, to, to see it. You know, this is, this is like I said, a new adventure for me. I've learned so much uh, about filmmaking and how collaborative it is, um, including, you know, having some uh, audiences uh, look at it. So, um, yeah, so we're trying not to put it on. We're not going to have it on anything. We might put the trailer on Facebook once we have the final the fine cut done. But um, right now we're kind of like uh, <laughs> we're a little bit concerned not to show it until it's in a, in a good space. Yeah, well, cool. Well, so where where can people go to keep um, keep posted on the the updates for the documentary? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't <laughs> know. Uh, I think there is a there is a Facebook page. I think that you guys. Yeah, made. I think there is a Facebook page. We just haven't done anything with it for a while. Uh, but okay. when 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 we do, uh, I will definitely be putting it on the Facebook page. Um, yeah, let me know because I'll, I'll I'll pump it out everywhere I can post it. Because yeah, the, I think people want to know about that. So that'll be great. People people just need to they need to do their own work and just and just look for it. They need to be ready. Exactly. And you know, I, think, <laughs> I do think it's going to be a. a, a I, I wanted to honor Flannery O'Connor. I wanted to honor her her faith life as an important aspect of it. I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Explore race, especially as Jim Crow South was deteriorating and civil rights were beginning. I want to explore her stories and how beautiful and how haunting and mysterious in some ways they are and funny. Um, she's a very funny person. Yeah. So um, hopefully you'll get that all in the film. Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for, for taking time to talk about this. And um, I think tonight we're just going to read a bunch of Flannery O'Connor with our kids, <laughs> to our kids. So um, I'm very, very, very excited about this. And thank you so much for, um, yeah, for giving just such a great presentation of all of her work. Thank you, Edmund. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye now.